Registrations are now open for the Bioceuticals Internship Program, commencing in December 2018. If you think you've got what it takes to thrive in an intense program designed to expose you to all facets of the complementary medicine industry, you should apply now. For more information, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Natalie Burke, who's a holistic dietitian and nutritionist, author, podcaster, speaker, and fitness instructor. She's part of the practitioner support team at Bioceuticals and runs Health by Whole Foods, a nutritional consulting business with a clinical focus on thyroid dysfunction, HBA axis dysregulation, and gut health. Nat is passionate about helping women build a healthy relationship with food and their body. She achieves lasting results for her clients by using whole food nutrition, functional medicine, and holistic lifestyle advice. You can catch her fortnightly on the Holistic Nutritionists podcast with fun and quirky interviews that aim to dispel nutrition myths and guide listeners on a balanced approach to health. Her ebook, Healing Digestive Discomfort, is an industry leading guide with accessible guidance for anyone looking to start improving their gut health. Welcome back to FX Medicine. Nat, how are you? Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be back. I'm really good, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Really good. Now, we did a really interesting podcast previously on CrossFit, but you really enlightened me and indeed you inspired me by your openness with your own eating disorders. That's what we're going to be discussing today. And I think. To start off with, we need a few definitions. So what types of eating disorders are there? Yeah, so look, there are probably four main types of eating disorders that are recognized. And I'll go through a bit of a definition of each so we're all on the same page. So starting with anorexia nervosa. So this one is characterized by restrictive food intake or energy intake that leads to someone being unable to actually maintain what is considered to be a normal or healthy weight for their age, height and gender, etc. There's also an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming overweight no matter what their current weight or appearance happens to be at the time. The next um, one would be binge eating disorder. So this one is characterized by episodes of binge eating. So basically eating a large amount of food over a very short period of time with no compensatory behaviors and also still having that same um, fear of food or more so negative body image and also a feeling of loss of control during um, the episode of overeating. Mm. Then we have bulimia nervosa. So this is characterized by um, repeated episodes of binge eating, as in binge eating disorder, but it's actually followed by more compensatory behaviors such as purging. So there's also um, an excessive emphasis on body shape or weight um, in their self-evaluation or self-perception as well. And then the final one um, is a bit of a tongue twister or a long one. It's called Other Specified Feeding or Eating Disorder or 
Ofsted for short, and it was actually formerly known as eating disorder not otherwise specified. So some practitioners um, listening may know it as that, but it's the same thing. And basically, this would present with many of the same symptoms of other eating disorders, but it will not meet the full criteria for a diagnosis in any of the other categories. You said something which sparked my interest just a little while back, and that was during their episode where they have this loss of control during their episode. Are you saying that there is control when they're not having an episode, but then something hits, something triggers them? Or is this underlying simmering thing going on in their head all the time? Look, I think it's probably different for everyone. Um, I think there's always an obsessiveness around food and it's more what happens is when they start to eat, they find it hard to stop and then when they can't stop themselves, it's kind of like this feeling of loss of control and you just have to keep eating and eating and eating, essentially because if you stop, you have to deal with the emotions that are underlying um, causing that binge eating in the first place. Gotcha. And so what about the current theories? I remember back in my nursing day, there was this uh, prevailing theory of, particularly in women, affected by, I think it was anorexia nervosa. And forgive me, back then, eating disorders weren't as well defined, but there seemed to be this prevailing theory of a controlling parent, particularly a mother, a mother-daughter relationship. Is that still current or has that been um, overrun? So, look, I'd say there's definitely um, genetics at play and also environmental factors at play, and I would say that family environment definitely has a role, but it's certainly not recognised as the only thing that's influencing um, the occurrence of eating disorders. So I'd probably say all experts in the field of eating disorders agree that there are both genetic and environmental components to eating disorders. And within that, there are different theories about what's contributing, um, which we can go through. So probably the first one um, would be genetics. So There is evidence that eating disorders do have a genetic component, though very few like SNPs have been specifically identified at this stage. But I think the future is promising in that regard because, as you know, the expansion of genetic testing is just phenomenal and it's only continu- it's only going to continue. Mm, mm. I think one of the big issues, though, is that it's really hard to get a large enough sample size to produce statistically significant results, um, you know, and, and look for SNPs in that regard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's just kind of my take on it. I'm certainly not a genetic expert, but um, that's what I could see as being one of the barriers. In terms of what has been done, though, so basically they've done family studies of those with anorexia and bulimia and have found a higher lifetime prevalence of eating disorders among relatives of eating disorder sufferers. And also they've done twin studies, um, which also suggest that both anorexia and bulimia are significantly influenced by genetic factors. So basically when they are looking at the differences between identical and fraternal twins, correlations are actually twice as high in identical twins compared to fraternal twins. So that obviously is a suggestion that, hey, there might actually be a genetic component here and something to consider for sure. There are various theories around what the genes are influencing 
to increase the risk for eating disorders. So one example um, that I often give when I'm explaining it to people is the influence that genes have on personality traits, which, um, you know, obviously environmental factors also come to play in that. But it makes sense to an extent because we do actually see common personality traits in those with eating disorders. So some examples of these um, would be things like perfectionism, um, obsessive compulsiveness, negative emotionality, um, harm avoidance, and also that real core low self-esteem. So specific additional personality traits may be associated with each type of eating disorder. And another thing um, that's very important to take into consideration is that prolonged starvation actually induces changes in cognition, behavior, interpersonal characteristics. So in that regard, it can be different, like difficult to separate the psychological causes from the psychological effects of eating disorders and it does become a bit of a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah, before we go deeper, and I mean, that's a big dive, that one, chicken or egg, but just before we go into that, um, with regards to the genetic component, I see a sort of quasi-link here with the genetic component of addictions. Yeah, definitely. So... It's sort of along this spectrum almost of OCD, addictions, eating disorders. So is it a case where you've got probably a genetic component, let's face it, but also uh, combined with the self-esteem issues and perhaps an an environmental or familial issue, uh, family issue, where something basically creates the perfect storm? Yeah, I definitely think that's uh, that's the situation. I don't think that there is any one specific cause and I don't think that they'll they'll ever be. I do think that there is a bit of a perfect storm situation um, that does come about and absolutely when you're saying, um, you know, the similarity there with other mental health um, disorders is there definitely, I mean, we know that anorexia and bulimia and these eating disorders, they, you know, often co-occur with things like um, OCD and depression, anxiety, um, as you would expect um, when, you know, being obsessed with food and body is your world, there has to be some degree of, of angst that comes with that for sure. Now, the interesting thing there, of course, is self-esteem. It's a lifelong process, begins in childhood, and it evolves where you've got um, the nature versus nurture theory there, um, both of which I think are important. Where does self-esteem form and can it be changed? Yeah, look, I think that, as as you said, we have a genetic predisposition to some of our um, behaviours and particularly, I would say, um, a, you know, kind of like influences on the serotonin dopamine type um, situation, which I'll share some interesting research with you shortly on that when we go deeper into that. But I think in terms of environmental, that's obviously where a big part of it comes in. If you're constantly... Um, told that you're not good enough or you're, for example, a lot of um, girls are in sports from a long age that have an emphasis on um, body composition or body image. So things like gymnastics, um, dancing, like ballet, um, there is definitely a component of um, focus on that. And also, I, I think if you've got parents or friends or sisters or people who you're surrounded with that have a big focus on body image then and they're picking themselves apart then it's definitely something that kind of filters out to you and and you do start picking yourself apart in in that same way 
in in relation to your question of can you change it, I am of big belief that you can change it. Um, and when we talk about my personal experience down the track, I can definitely give share some insight there. But I do think that's possible. I think it's very difficult, and I think that any um, anyone listening that um, has experienced difficulty with body image issues knows that it's it's a very hard thing to practice self-love and self-love of your body, but it's definitely worth it. And it's one of those things that gets stronger with practice and with time. And it and it, it seems to be this taboo thing. Self-love versus arrogance is totally different. The yeah. two totally separate things. With regards to that, that self-love image, how important is these external influences like, for instance, media. You know, we've been through the WAIF period oh, over a decade ago now. It was, just, it was horrible to see these models that were skeletal. Yeah, it's and I look, I think that there's absolutely a role that media has because they have a huge influence on our conditioning of what we think people want from us and yeah. what we think people want us to look like and to be like. And it's hard... If you're not consciously trying to be aware of that, it does subconsciously start to form your conditioning about what maybe you should look like. So there's definitely an influence of that. But I would say that um, it's not the only thing because obviously we're all exposed to those kind of messages to some degree. And a lot of women will diet, a lot of women will um, you know, read magazines and see all that stuff. But not every woman goes on to experience an eating disorder. So I think that's where um, we recognize that absolutely it it plays a part and it needs to be addressed. And I think there is more of a movement towards positive body image that's happening slowly. Mm. But I also think that it can't be as simple as that. No, it contains its own pressures as well, as as yeah. you say, and, and you were very brave in admitting this in our last podcast in CrossFit, and you spoke about your own issues with regards to your, um, you know, controlling your eating to a state where it actually became a problem whilst you were engaging in exercise. So it was this sort yeah. of undoing the sort of goodness, if you like. Yeah, definitely. And um, just bringing it back to what, what we kind of started with in terms of the kind of neurological changes that go on with eating disorders or what, what kind of effect it's hap- is happening, I think it's really an important thing to discuss in relation to serotonin and dopamine dysregulation in people with eating disorders because I think that helps to also explain to other people that, hey, it's not just this superficial um obsession with um, how someone looks. It, it's not as simple as that. There are actually neurochemical changes that are going on. And I'd, I'd love to share with you a bit of information about serotonin and dopamine and how that's dysregulated to help practitioners and, and listeners understand that it isn't as simple as being self-obsessed and self-absorbed um, by, by choice. No, please do, because that's this. Is, I, I think this is crucial that we um, explore this. So Let's go into that now. What are yeah, these so, main things? Yeah. Yeah. So people with anorexia have actually been found to have elevated levels of serotonin, which is independent of the stage of the illness. And these really high levels of serotonin have been associated with higher levels of anxiety. 
And interestingly, people with anorexia can actually lower the amount of serotonin their bodies make by starving themselves, which is why restricting their food intake relieves their anxiety to an extent. However, what happens is the brain will actually sense that decrease and express more receptors to essentially get more out of what's there. And so more food restriction is required to get that same effect. And that's partly why refeeding is so incredibly difficult and distressing for anorexic sufferers because, um, you know, there's just this influx of serotonin, you're hypersensitive to it, and their anxiety is just at an all-time high. Do we therefore try and reduce serotonin because isn't that going to make more receptors and cause a worse 22 or do we actually try and nourish the body in different ways so that we have this, let's say, a graceful decline of 5-HT receptors? Yeah, look, I think the latter is probably a better approach. I I can't say I've seen a lot of research um, in either direction that is um, conclusive as to what would be the best thing to do. Um, I do know that there hasn't been much, like there hasn't been very much success with using things like SSRIs, um, and that I find that really interesting. I mean, there's there's a small amount of success um, with um, some people, but definitely the overall consensus is that they aren't the best option. Yet they're continually prescribed because in a GP's office when you've got someone that is um, depressed in front of you and has an eating disorder, you know, an antidepressant seems like the logical thing to prescribe and and gives them something actively to do. And in a sense, um, it's very hard and we have to recognize that anorexia and eating disorders are incredibly frustrating and Mm -hmm. difficult to treat. And so sometimes, you know, doctors do just reach for what what they reach for, but I think that it's starting to become less of a knee-jerk reaction in that regard, and there are other treatments that are starting to be more recognised. What sort of treatments are we talking about here? So I think more viewing it as a holistic um, approach, so addressing um, nutrient deficiencies in, mm-hmm. some, in some clinics and also making sure that there's definitely a psychological component um, to it in terms of psychological management. So making sure people have access to psychologists and probably the most common therapy that's used is um, CBT and um, mindfulness and those kind of approaches and um, group therapy, all those kind of things are definitely being used. Um, Interestingly, actually, uh, one thing that they have trialed using that helped with weight gain was actually an antihistamine. Um, It hasn't been successful in all studies, but there were a couple of trials where an antihistamine was was used and that actually helped with um, producing weight gain. So I found that quite interesting. Yeah. What any purported mechanism? H two antagonism. Um, yeah. So what happens is that um, there's a, there seems to be um, an ex- increased expression of H1 receptors, um, which are associated with the regulation of appetite. And um, in our anorexic patients, we actually know that they have high levels of histamine and that helps suppress their appetite. So in that regard, it's, it's kind of treating the the reduced appetite side of things and helping, I guess, helping them gain weight. So from that perspective, that's the main main way it's working from my understanding. Right. And do you know which antihistamine they use, one of the drowsy ones? 
Um, I'll have to go back and have a look. That'd be really um, interesting. I guess I was really interested in this sort of um, um, cross-reactivity between the H1, H2 receptors. For instance, there's the old, um, uh, you know, antacids, which an antihistamine will have some slight crossover with. And I'm just wondering about its sort of brain chemical stomach action. I'm wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's really interesting. And I can't say that I know a whole heap about that, but definitely something to look in, mm. into further um, because it is, it's, it's just, it starts to kind of all add up. So mm. um, just to backtrack a bit, I did actually find the name while, you were, while I was listening to you there. So it's actually, it was actually um, cyprohectidine. Mm. Um, that was the antihistamine that was used. So no it did help. Never yeah. heard. <laughs> I'll have to look well, up something. Some <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll put something up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners. That's great, though. So what about yeah. other nutritional aspects? And I guess we go here, you know, what's cause and what's effect? Um, I remember years ago reading something from Professor Derek Bryce Smith. Um, he was at Reading University looking at zinc deficiency in rats. And he found that they tended to have an eating disorder once the brain zinc levels got below a certain level. Now, obviously that's based on autopsy, can only be done in rats ethically. Um, but um, it was very interesting that when he gave a certain type of zinc, um, zinc heptahydrate, I think it was, that they tended, these, these rats tended to spontaneously recover from their anorexia. So yeah, cause or effect? Yeah. Well, look, I don't, I don't think we know yet. I think that absolutely zinc has a role to play and you'll see that um, the kind of symptoms of zinc deficiency and the symptoms of anorexia are quite similar. So we do see that, um, you know, loss of taste and smell and decreased appetite and all those kind of things. So research definitely does show that um, many patients with anorexia are deficient in zinc and not surprisingly. Um, I don't think that zinc's the only thing to blame, but I do think that zinc status or rather correcting zinc deficiencies is a promising and important step in assisting someone to recover, um, particularly with anorexia, because we know, as, as I said, that zinc is essential to neurological function and has important um, impacts on appetite and sense of taste, which is obviously linked to the enjoyment of food. Yeah. So, of course, um, you know, the impact of zinc on things like depression and anxiety is also important because we know that those conditions also often co-occur with anorexia. So, Absolutely, zinc is, is part of, of the story. And I know that there have been a number of trials done on using zinc supplementation in anorexic um, patients. And I think there was one done that actually showed a, showed a twofold increase of the rate of increase of body mass index uh -huh. in zinc group compared to controls. And yep. I believe that was 14 milligrams of zinc for two months. I don't recall which type of zinc it was for that trial, but I know there was actually another one that was a randomized um, double-blind placebo-controlled trial and that used 100 milligrams of zinc gluconate um, and that was given to uh, that was given daily and that actually showed um, a 10% increase in body mass in index so the rate of increase in BMI of zinc supplement of the zinc supplemented group was twice that of the placebo so I absolutely think that zinc supplementation should be a key thing that all practitioners that are treating anorexia need to use because it's simple, it's cheap, and it's effective. And no, it won't solve 
all parts of the problem, but anything that can help should be used because, as as I've said, you know, time and time again, it's notoriously difficult to treat. And the thing I like about that is the the rather judicious dose that was used. That that's quite um, not just attainable but safe as well. We're not going to run into any long term problems with you know copper interaction and things like that using that low dose. That's quite um, quite uh, encouraging. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, you know, the other thing that I actually would recommend that practitioners look into supplementing with would be um, would be um, fish oil. So we know that essential fatty acids are also really important in neurological health, and this is essentially a neurological condition. Mm. And we know that, for example, just a thousand milligrams of EPA has actually demonstrated equal effect effectiveness to 20 milligrams of fluoxetine in major depressive disorder and these patients with eating disorders are depressed. So um, if it's as simple as giving someone some EPA and DHA um, in, in the form of a supplement, then it's definitely worth a go. I've spoken with Elisma Lambert with regarding addictions and um, she uses GABA, oral GABA, to balance out dopamine, the sort of reward system. Do you find this useful with people with um, eating disorders? Yeah, definitely. I think GABA has um, has a role to play. I would say that it, it's a bit of a... It, it works for some people and not for others. Uh, others, I guess, to explain the kind of dopamine connection a bit further in relation to anorexia... Um, it's actually, so the leading hypothesis um, is that anorexia is associated with an overproduction of dopamine, which leads to anxiety um, and harm avoidance, hyperactivity, um, and also the ability to go without pleasurable things like food. And then on the contrary, research has shown that bulimia is associated with lower levels of both um, dopamine and also some of its receptors and that binge eating is significantly associated with dopamine release in certain parts of the brain. And I guess also, and not surprisingly, binge eating disorder has been linked to hyper-responsiveness to rewards such as food, which obviously makes um, food more rewarding, more pleasurable um, than people without the disorder and leads to that continuation of that compulsive overeating. So I I could therefore imagine that something like the smell, the aroma of food would be vastly different um, or would have vastly different effects from an anorexic versus somebody with bulimia. Absolutely, yeah. And we've got the influence of both zinc deficiency and also the dopamine coming into play Mm. there. So, yeah, definitely. So when anorexic patients tell you that they can't smell their food, their their food tastes horrible they're not lying it's it's true it's it's it is happening for them and that is real now also talking about their their experiences of food and now let's take that to what they see in the mirror yeah so there's definitely distorted body images happening um so what they and i guess this is something that's incredibly frustrating for families and friends to understand because the difference between what they see and what the anorexic person sees in the mirror is absolutely completely different and there is that distorted body image. I don't think we know the exact mechanism of why that's happening at the moment, but it does have to do with neurological changes and everything that's going on there and it it is real. And I can tell you from personal experience that um, when you 
for example, a good example would be that you would um, go for a run and you would come back and you would look in the mirror and your thighs would be smaller than they were when you first went for your run. Then you would have something to eat, something as simple as like an apple and you would go back to the mirror again and you'd look in the mirror and they had grown, they'd almost doubled in size. And it's incredibly distressing, but it's incredibly real as well. But as you say, incredibly frustrating for caregivers and family because they can't see that change. So it's it's kind of like to me that, um, you know, when I did my psych nursing component, how you know, if somebody was having a psychotic episode, they were explaining things that were not there. So they were explaining spiders, you know, a, um, radioactive clouds creeping over. I'll always remember these stories. I had the greatest conversations with these patients. So what they would explain, I could not see. Um, and mm-hmm. I remember the supposed best way to handle it, me not being a fully trained psych nurse, so please take that into consideration, uh, was that you would say, I understand that's real for you. I'm sorry, I can't share that reality. Does that change when somebody says to you, suffering from an eating disorder, I can't see what you're seeing? It's very, it feels very, like from a patient perspective, from being, having anorexia myself, it's when someone says that it feels very frustrating mm. and very isolating because you just can't comprehend that someone could possibly not see what you are seeing. And likewise, you know, it, the kind of it's a two-way street, you know, that that person can't see what you're seeing and vice versa. Mm. And it's, it's hard because no matter what you say as a family member, as a caregiver, as a friend to someone with anorexia, it's always wrong because we'll twist it in our minds to, to suit our, our kind of perception and how we are thinking about things, which yeah. is why it's so frustrating. Okay, so from a practitioner perspective, how should you handle that? Look, I think that it is different for everybody. I think that um, one of the number one things that's important to do is to not place any um, importance or emphasis on how they're looking, whether that be um, that they've put on weight or they've lost weight, focus on, on health and focus on um, nutrition and, and that nutritional status because if you are focusing on weight, whether that be um, that they've put on weight or they've lost weight when they've come to see you, then it's it's feeding into that being important for them. So I think that, of course, it's important to acknowledge um, you know what changes have occurred, but not putting any emotional words around that, or not putting a tone in that. Um, you know, you've you've put on weight. I'm really happy for you. Like I'm really I'm really proud of you. That's great, because that will still send them into a fear. So I think the less importance that you can place on that, and the less focus you can place on that, and the more you can pull it towards um, health and um, nutritional status, it's, it kind of makes it a little bit easier for them to not react poorly to. And I can imagine this reaction. I mean, that must cause so much stress when there's a conflict going on of what, what one person sees compared to what another person really does see. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting um, because there's actually a disturbance in also in relation to memory processing and storing, um, oh. particularly in relation to the serotonergic system. So what actually has been hypothesized is that anorexic patients have an increased ability to store negative memories associated with their body. So for example, if they've been teased when they were younger about being fat or having big size or whatever it is, it's actually easier for them to store that memory and harder for them to actively or voluntarily inhibit that memory from resurfacing. So I think it's called from memory um, the allocentric lock theory. And I think if anyone wants to look into it further, they can. But I, I think that's interesting because it means that for some, for a normal person, um, you know, as women, I know we all have those moments where we're just like, oh... I'm not looking very good today or, you know, my, my legs look big today or something like that. But we can we can kind of get rid of that thought pretty quickly most of the time. For anorexic patients, they can't get rid of it. They just it's it's with them and it does lead to a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and they feel like that all of the time. So um with they're actually constantly in that kind of flight or fight response and that in itself, as we know, kind of shuts down digesting and reproducing and appetite and feeds yeah. into that disorder further. That's an interesting thing you say about the allocentric lock theory. I recall something about this, you know, like danger signals, um, that they actually had a function when we were evolving as an animal, as a primate. Mm. And that is basically these negative th- things, basically like don't touch the stove, it'll burn you, were actually a saving device um, so that you could um, live. Um, but what's happening here is that it's now directed not towards your safety, but your body image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's horrible. And I, I think one analogy that I could give people to give a bit of insight into actually what it feels like being on the inside, the inside of the head of someone with anorexia is that Imagine that you are in a grocery store and you turn your back for one second and your little toddler that's two years old um, has gone missing and you can't find them and that rush of fear that just comes over you and you can't focus on anything else and um, that's what it feels like all of the time to be in the head of an anorexic person. All of the time. You are constantly in fear and that's how it feels and the only thing that relieves that in most situations is controlling food and and starving yourself, essentially. And and for some people, exercise plays a big role as well. But it's in a vain attempt to control neurotransmitters. This is this really interesting way in which the body will try and save you, at least to an extent. Yeah, exactly. So warning signs. What do practitioners need to be aware of? You won't get, very rarely, you'll get a, a patient walking in saying, hi, I have an eating disorder and I'd like to be treated. What yeah, do practitioners no. need to be alert to, therefore, so that they can pick up, um, let's say, being suspicious of an eating disorder without being paranoid of an eating disorder? Yeah, look, I think um, anyone who comes in and who presents as being really preoccupied with body appearance and with weight and with food, um, anyone that uh, presents with a distorted view of their body, and you'll pick up on this in conversation, um, anyone who has really specific food diaries, and I'm talking about they're like, I had 100 grams of chicken with um, 8 grams of almond spread, those kind of really detailed things. Um, if they um, are coming in and they're wearing a lot of baggy clothes um, frequently, 
Um, if you notice, I guess this is more of a family friends type symptom or warning sign. If, if there's withdrawal from friends or family or avoidance of social situations or any kind of um, anxiety around mealtimes or food, so if people need things to be a particular way or they get quite um, anxious if, for example, the wrong brand of something is bought, um, that can often be another sign. Then in terms of bulimia and binge eating disorder, a few more that I'd add would be um, if they've got a lot of dental issues. Um, uh, if of Yeah, if there's um, at home, um, this would obviously be something that more family are looking out for. But if there's missing food from the cupboards or the fridge that you can't really explain, like, you know, your husband didn't eat it or he wouldn't like it and it's gone missing and, you know, you didn't eat it, then that's another hint. If there's a lot of empty packets of food in cars, if there's uneaten or chewed food in the bin um, or lots of packages, like lots of food packages in the bin. Um, also, another one that's quite interesting is always insisting that they'll clean up after dinner because often they'll clean up and they will pick at food while they're cleaning up and then that will turn into a binge later. Um, also, anxiety around making food or baking in particular because they'll find that they can't make one, they can't make, for example, a batch of brownies and only eat one. It will become a huge, it will become a binge and then you'll often find leftovers if there is any in the bin outside. Um, and the other final warning sign I'd probably say is really smelly drains in the shower because often people with bulimia will actually go in the shower to to purge because there's the sound of that the shower trying kind of disguising it if they are living with other people. There's so much to consider here, isn't there? And and I guess it, it, it would largely revolve around the the caring nature of the family to actually act on those suspicions. Um, yeah. So what about appropriate referral, though? If you suspect as a practitioner that there's an eating disorder in play, what should you do? Where do they get sent? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to refer them to a psychologist and if it is outside your practice realm, then I do think you can also refer to um, another practitioner that specialises in eating disorders or has some experience in that area because it is absolutely one of the most difficult and frustrating disorders to treat. And I'd also recommend having a GP on board, um, particularly when it's more severe because there are electrolyte imbalances that can happen and that becomes a medical emergency and, and they will need to be put into an inpatient program. So I think those would be the main referrals that I've, I'd have um, in my mind because um, it's important that early treatment um, is, happens because the longer it goes on, the harder it is to get out of it. Do you look for any specialised qualifications in psychologists or GPs? Um, I would look for psychologists that do have um, a clinical focus on eating disorders or who have done further training um, in that area. And there are plenty around. I think a really great resource is the Butterfly Foundation. Um, they have lots of resources. Um, they even have like a free um, phone line that you can call and they have um, counsellors that are trained in eating disorders on that line. So it's a great place for information, for further referrals and information of, of where to get help. And there's lots of experienced people there um, that will be able to point you in the right direction. Okay. I also have to ask about appropriateness of supplements. So, you know, we've spoken about zinc and that it's got a usefulness. We've spoken about some things that might be based around inflammation or, or um, relaxation, uh, but do you find any issues with certain supplements? 
I think um, when you're treating someone with anorexia, it's it's probably easy to get capsules and supplements into them that way. But when you start to add things that have like, like a protein powder or things that have um, cal- like like a calorie value to them, it makes it a, a lot more difficult to ensure compliance because on days when they don't feel like they deserve that food or they can fit that into their um, quota of calories that they've set for themselves, they're not going to take it. So you're not going to get that consistency. So in the initial stages, I think using something like um, yeah, zinc definitely, um, a multivitamin can even be helpful um, and also definitely those essential fatty acids. And then from there, working based on where that person is at. So I definitely think that um, a focus on B vitamins and also protein powders to an extent um, once they're more on board with eating more can be helpful. But I think in the initial kind of get them out of danger situation, it's best to give them capsules or tablets that they know don't have any effect on their weight per se. Yeah, but this, I guess, would be a double-edged sword in that, and perhaps you can explain how you felt. You know, for instance... um, would there be a, a choosing of non-caloric supplements in a vain attempt to avoid calories while still yeah. maintaining nutrition? You know, that sort of... Look, there there would be, but I think that that's going to happen anyway. And it's right. a bit of a cost-benefit analysis situation here. So your end goal is obviously to get them eating more, but it's going to take a while um, to get them to that place. Mm-hmm. And I think that giving them... Um, nutrients in the first place, for example, things like zinc can actually help them to become more interested in food because it helps with that kind of appetite, increased appetite and also helps with the sense of taste and smell of food so it becomes a bit more pleasurable. So unfortunately, it's not really um, a win-win situation in all cases. It's, it's a bit of a what am I going to get the most benefit from at a small cost of, yes, having that, uh, having that risk that they will justify um, that they don't need to eat because they're taking supplements. Um, you just kind of have to make that assessment. And, and in many situations, personally and professionally, I've found that getting them out of the woods at least with some um, with some supplements that don't have any calorie value to them can be helpful. Now, I've got to you know, make a real point here about your courage with this because you, uh, what I see now, um, and I've known you as a colleague for a number of, what, what is it, just over a year now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And and yet what I see is this quietly confident lady who really knows her stuff. So I have to ask, with regards to your previous experiences, do you still run into triggers where you go, uh-oh, I know what I'm, what's happening now? Or do you find that you are, dare I say that word, cured? You know, what, what goes on now with you? Yeah, look, I it's my personal belief that an eating disorder never leaves you, but you get a lot better at managing it and it doesn't become your world. So I would say that I now can control those thoughts and I'm aware of when they come up and I don't act on them. So I would say I still have a tendency to, when other things in my life are out of control, the first thing when I'm not being conscious of it, the first thing that I'll want to control is food and and exercise. But my 
I guess now that I've built up that muscle that's like, hey, no, this is this is not what you need to do. Um, this isn't going to make you any happier, any more successful, any more loved. That that voice is is stronger than the one that says you have to do this to be accepted. So I think that it's it's it doesn't leave you, but you become a lot better at finding strategies to actually manage that voice, and it doesn't. It, it doesn't rule your world anymore. So that's really, it's really exciting to get to that place because, um, you know, especially when most people spend quite a long time um, on the opposite side of the fence. Yeah. So I've got to say, therefore, on this concept of self-love, self-acceptance, self-esteem, what are the best resources that you found helped you? Um, what can you recommend for other practitioners to help their patients? Yeah, I think the number one thing is to get out of the environments that trigger you. So for me, I used to do a lot of exercise in like a traditional gym that was just near my house and a lot of people knew me there as the person that was always exercising, that was always um, quote-unquote healthy and fit. Um, And I found that removing myself from that environment where I was projecting, um, I guess, things that things onto them that I thought I needed to uphold in terms of that um, skinny, skinny look, that, um, you know, exercising all the time, always eating the right foods. I removed myself from that environment. I also removed myself from any kind of um, friends or um, situations that made me feel like I should focus on my body image at all. And what I replaced these things were was, uh, and this is just me personally, what worked was I actually, um, well, that's what how I got into CrossFit actually was to focus on an activity. It doesn't have to be CrossFit, an activity that is based more on performance in terms of what can your body do as opposed to what does my body look like. Um, and the other thing that I did was to start yoga and to start actively going there to a really, really wonderful studio that has a focus on um, all of those self-love messages that are really important and starting to read those kind of books that do encourage you to um, recognize that there is way more to you than your physical appearance. And definitely the last tip I would give is doing a social media clean out. So that means that going through your Instagram and unfollowing anything that makes you feel like you should look a certain way or be a certain way. So we're all guilty of doing the old scroll through Instagram and looking at all these um, fit women with abs or models and whatnot. And all it does is make you feel horrible. And so there's no, it does you no justice by continuing to put those subconscious messages in your head. So it's really about getting on your own side and finding more things that can actually support you as opposed to make you feel you know bad about yourself natalie burke i cannot thank you enough for being so brave in sharing you know what seriously i I know that you've you manage it really well now you look the epitome of health um you teach others about how to attain that but you are acutely aware of the aspects that are underlying an eating disorder so you can really truly know what they're seeing and feeling Um, which is way different from what we see and feel. And and I just thank you so much for taking us through uh, the issues presenting those people with eating disorders. And hopefully this will give some ammunition for practitioners, listeners out there, so that they can appropriately treat or refer 
um, those patients that come across their paths who need help. So thank you very much for taking us through this on FX Medicine today. My pleasure, Andrew. And look, I think there's therapeutic value in sharing your story as well. So um, I, I, I don't have any problem with sharing my story with people and I think that it can be really beneficial for others to do the same. Applause to you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Symposium will be held in Sydney on Sunday the 16th of September 2018. This ATMS special event will bring together five diversely qualified speakers offering new insights into diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to atms.com.au and click on the events tab.